This is The Rounds Table. Hey listeners, welcome back to The Rounds Table. We have a rumble in the jungle for you today. It's another rapid fire with our favorite co-host, Mike Fralick from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Mike, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks, Kieran. Happy to be here. Put your dukes up. Let's get going. Mike, we're going to take us through four rapid fire articles, but today it's a you versus me. I'm going to do two. You're going to do two. Why don't you start us off and introduce your first article? Awesome. Sounds great, Kieran. So the first article is entitled The Association Between a Virtual Glucose Management Service and Glycemic Control in Hospitalized Adult Patients, and it was published in the Annals at the end of March 2017. So what's the research question for this article? Yeah, so the question here is whether or not a virtual glucose management service And to demystify that, we're just going to call it the insulin stewardship team, okay? So whether or not an insulin stewardship team can improve glycemic control. That sounds kind of ambiguous, but frame it for us. Why is it important? Ah, Perfect. So it's important because we know that 40% of inpatients have hyperglycemia. As a general internist who recently attended, I can certainly attest to that. And we also know that hypoglycemia can be deadly. And we've sort of seen the model of this antimicrobial stewardship, and that's worked clearly quite well. So kind of think about this as the endocrinology equivalent in a way. This is the insulin stewardship team focused on improving glycemic control. Ah, there's the rub. Maybe we need a third party overseeing some of our more common medication managements. So Mike, take us through the design of this study. So this was a cross-sectional study, essentially a pre-implementation of the stewardship team and then a post-implementation. And it was conducted at three hospitals in sunny, beautiful California. And they included all of the patients who were admitted into hospital, except obstetrical patients. And this insulin stewardship team consisted of a nurse, a pharmacist, and an endocrinologist They worked not five days a week, but seven days a week, like a good resident physician. And they specifically provided electronic recommendations for patients who had hypoglycemia, blood sugar of less than four or less than 70 in the U.S., and uh, or if they had multiple high blood sugars greater than 12 in Canada and greater than 225 in the U.S. And this stewardship team only used the electronic health record data. They didn't interview or examine the patient. Wow, this sounds like quite an encouraging quality improvement initiative. What did those patients, of which there sounds like there was going to be a lot, what did they look like in this study? So they had about 68,000 adults who were hospitalized across these three centers at the time points included. They focused on about 18,000 patients, and those were the patients that had their glucose monitored In terms of the classic table one data, it's a bit underwhelming because remember, this is more of like a a quality improvement or a system improvement rather than getting granular patient data. So what we know is about half the patients were men and 40% were admitted to an internal medicine service, which means quite a few of these patients were admitted to a surgical service. Right. And I think pragmatically, you want to see about the effect of a stewardship program like this on everybody. And I'm sure you might have a criticism later whether you needed to focus on one particular group and then expand it. But let's get into the results and find out what the effect of this kind of an insulin stewardship program had in sunny California. Essentially, the mean glucose, so the average glucose for these patients did not change over time. 
On average, your blood sugar was about 9.5 before the intervention and 9.2 after the intervention. So you're maybe thinking, ooh, it doesn't sound very impressive. But here's the impressive part. The proportion of patients who had hyperglycemia decreased by 40%, all right? So going from 7 per 100 patient days to 4 per 100 patient days. And they also saw a 40% reduction in hypoglycemia and also a reduction in patients with severe hypoglycemia, a blood sugar less than 2, from about 40 patients in the pre-intervention to 15 patients in the post-intervention. Did they look at any of the outcomes or consequences of hyper or hypoglycemia? Rather, you know, for example, wound healing, wound infections, or hypoglycemic events requiring some kind of more intense intervention like the ICU? Great question. They didn't have a lot of that kind of more granular outcome data the same way that they didn't have the granular baseline patient data because they were looking at these individuals as a group rather than getting person-by-person information. Okay. Any other limitations that you thought apply to this particular study? I think any study that's cross-sectional, you worry about maybe other things that were going on. Maybe there are other changes that weren't being accounted for. But a bigger issue I think that I have is how sustainable is this? So you had an endocrinologist, a pharmacist, and a nurse working seven days per week. I don't know how much money that costs. I would have to guess maybe a half a million dollars just for salary support there. And I just sort of wonder, is that really going to be very sustainable? That's my one kind of issue with this. Yeah, and I think sort of extending to what I was asking about some of the outcomes or consequences of a hypo or hyperglycemia, you know, once they've justified that this might be a effective intervention, they need to sort of look at the cost effectiveness of it. And also, what are you saving overall, rather than just fixing a number of glycemic control, you really need to have a hard patient outcome that it impacts upon as well, I think. So Mike, take it home for us. Yeah, and I completely agree. So I think the take home point here is that this sort of insulin stewardship, it definitely improved glycemic control. And I think that there is a bright future here for similar strategies something that's going to be a little bit more sustainable rather than requiring such a large team of individuals, but uh, I'm impressed. Very impressive. Stay with us, listeners. We're going to bounce back and forth here, moving on to my article that I chose. Keep your mind sharp. So I wanted to discuss an article that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at the treatment of subclinical hypothyroidism or hypothyroxinemia in pregnancy. Perfect. And Kieran, what was the the main research question they're trying to answer here. Well, this question was trying to look at whether the treatment of subclinical, defined as a TSH of greater than 4, or biochemical hypothyroidism, where your TSH is normal but your T4 is low, in pregnancy, if you treat these individuals before 20 weeks gestation, what impact does that have upon the cognitive function of the offspring? Okay, that sounds like an important and interesting question. I have to admit, though, that most of the patients that I'm looking after in hospital are many decades past the potential to be childbearing. So why is this question important to internists, family docs, etc.? Yeah, so I mean, I think from a general internist practice in Canada, where a lot of us are very hospital-based physicians, um, in the U.S., the general internist plays a much larger role in primary care. And certainly, regardless of the country you're in, General internists play a role in the care of the maternal complications of pregnancy, whether it be diabetes, thyroid issues, or even hypertension. 
But in the larger context of why this is important to our patients, we're not really sure if subclinical hypothyroidism affects neurocognitive development. It appears that there's a signal there. Um, but, uh, you know, whether the treatment of that problem uh, changes the outcome is actually even less clear. So we have huge screening programs at quite a cost to the Ontario Health Insurance Plan and other insurance plans across North America. But if we're going to screen, we should make sure that at least the treatments we have have some sort of impact. Okay, I can, I can buy that. So what was the study design here? So this was actually a randomized control trial, one of the few you see conducted in pregnancy. It was placebo-controlled, and they sort of broke the hypothyroid categories into two arms. They had the subclinical with your elevated TSH, and they had the biochemical with the normal TSH and low T4. And they gave pregnant women either placebo or levothyroxine, and the goal was to maintain a biochemical euthyroid state. So a TSH between 0.1 and 2.5 and a normal T4. And then they looked at the IQ scores of the offspring of those individuals when they were five years old. Wow, that's, uh, that's impressive. This, this, is a, this is a long-term study. I, I'm impressed here. This is a big one. Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, cool. So for the patients that uh, enrolled, what did they look like? So it's a person that I know who's you know pregnant and walks into my office She's, uh, there were 670 women who were randomized. They were at 18 weeks gestation on average, and they were typically about 28 years old, uh, BMI between 28 and 30, so it was just sort of on the moderately obese side. Um, and they were multi-paris with a TSH around 4.5, so just very slightly elevated. It being a largely U.S. study, they actually predominant, predominantly were Hispanic. But there were also a mix of Caucasian, Asian, and black race as well. Okay. So what were the main results here, Karen? So the treatment worked as far as achieving a euthyroid state in the women, as we would expect. And they, they were able to achieve this by a median of about 24 weeks gestational age for the, for the infants. But at five years, when they assessed the IQ of these offspring, there were no differences in the IQ between treatment and placebo arm. And in fact, in a whole battery of other neurocognitive developmental measures, there was no difference found between any of the groups, whether you were treated or not treated, and whether you had subclinical hypothyroidism or biochemical hypothyroidism as the mom. So overall, a largely negative trial in the treatment of subclinical hypothyroidism in pregnancy. Oh, wow, that's, uh, that, that causes some, some pause, that's for sure. Um, so do you believe the results? Were there any major uh, limitations to the study that you found? One minor, one more major. Let's start with the minor. You know, we didn't look at the baseline IQ, socioeconomic status, health literacy, and other comorbid conditions that might impact upon an out offspring's outcome. And they didn't look at that in the mothers before the, the babies were born. Although, I will say in a randomized control trial, you would expect, you know, probabilistically that those would all be balanced one side or the other. Um, although we can't be 100% sure because that wasn't measured. That's, I think, a minor point. The more major point actually comes from the embryology of the thyroid development and functioning in the infant. So the treatment in these mothers started considerably late, around the 18 weeks gestational age. But the thyroid in the developing fetus develops around 10 to 12 weeks and starts functioning on its own after that. So I wonder if supplying exogenous thyroid hormone to the moms, you're sort of missing the boat because by that point at 18 weeks, the babies have already started to produce their own thyroid hormone. Okay. 
But I and I guess it seems like you know so there was no difference in differences in IQs, and it seems like the babies that were born were not far below the average IQ, or there are major issues with neurocognitive development measures. So maybe that even suggests that when there is an effect, the effect size isn't big, even if you miss that sweet spot time window. Yeah, yeah. So I think overall, what you have to take away from this is really that treatment of subclinical hypothyroidism in pregnancy before 20 weeks of gestation really doesn't appear to impact significantly in any way upon the offspring's neurocognitive development up to five years at least. So for me, it raises the question on a policy level, should we continue to screen so aggressively or should we tailor our approach to identify higher risk populations? And I think you'll see, and we already have seen from the American Thyroid Association, the ATA guidelines, they've already recommended screening only in women who are at high risk for hypothyroidism rather than as a universal screening program. Okay, so sounds like this is practice changing for you then, Kieran? Well, I think I can you know, alter the counseling that I provide for a mother who has subclinical hypothyroidism, you know, a, a purely TSH 4.5, she's 28, 29 years old, um, and she's maybe read something on the internet, I think I can say, you know, we've had this recent trial, treatment doesn't appear to affect it. Let's go through a shared decision making together whether you think you would still like to receive treatment or not. Cool. Sounds reasonable. All right, Mike, back to you. Article number three. Back to me. Okay, and back to the world of diabetes. This one is entitled The Benefits and Harms of SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with type 2 diabetes. This is a systematic review and meta-analysis published in PLOS One at the end of 2016. So SGLT2 inhibitors, one of the new kids on the block for diabetes treatments. We've seen some big trials come out in the last few years. What is the research question for this systematic review? Uh, perfect. So they were interested in uh, what are the risks and benefits of these SGLT2 inhibitors, and in particular at the kind of highest doses um, possible, the therapeutically active doses. So I always love asking this question for systematic reviews because they're usually aimed at something important. Why is this an important one? Yeah, and I, I kind of feel like with diabetes, I feel like the response just be like, it's diabetes, you know, this is a massive problem. <laughs> but, but in particular, yeah, like you said, new kids on the block, um, these medications for people who aren't aware, so they're called the glyphosins, and that, that's because they profoundly increase urinary flow by causing an osmotic diuresis, you're peeing out the glucose. And it's important because the vast majority of the meds available improve your A1C, but most of the meds we give don't improve hard endpoints. Sounds reasonable. Take us through the design of a systematic review to answer this question. Uh, yeah, so this part is nice and easy for me. It was just um, a pretty good old-fashioned systematic review and meta-analysis. wasn't patient-level data. They looked at trial-level data. Um, pretty straightforward there. Yeah. I don't think we need to get into detail on a rapid-fire show. We've covered systematic reviews and meta-analysis in the past on our rounds table. So what did the patients that they came out of these uh, reviewed trials look like on the SGL2 inhibitors? For sure. So the average age was in the 50s. Average BMI was about 30. The baseline hemoglobin A1C was about 8%. And most of these studies were nine months or so. Um, we don't have a lot of uh, further granular details about these patients. Yeah, it sounds like a fairly typical diabetic patient, though, that we would see in under our care. What, what did they find in this review? 
So there were 34 randomized trials of nearly 10,000 patients, and 12 of these randomized trials were comparing SGLT2s to placebo, and the rest were comparing SGLT2 to another medication. And I'll just mention up front that the grade quality of evidence was moderate to low. They looked at, obviously, the benefits and the harms. So in terms of the benefits, these medications uh, reduce your hemoglobin A1c by approximately 0.7% compared to placebo. And they really give the same reduction in hemoglobin A1c as metformin, um, slightly better A1c reduction than other medications, but I'm talking like 0.2%, not clinically significant. They did have some other benefits, though. These included blood pressure reduction, so falls of blood pressure by 5 millimeters of mercury systolic, which is impressive, uh, weight reduction on the order of um, 5 or 6 pounds. Um, so in terms of the benefits, that's kind of how it all laid out. So it sort of sounds like this has a comparable efficacy to a lot of the existing uh, diabetic medications uh, on the market. I think a lot of the attention in the SGL2 inhibitors has come to some of the potential harms. And for me, I'm most interested to hear about those. Take us through those, Mike, please. For sure. So they looked at the risk of hypoglycemia. So of 5,000 patients randomized, for example, five had severe hypoglycemia with SGL2 inhibitors and six had severe hypoglycemia with placebo. Similar results for non-severe hypoglycemia. There was a definite increased risk for urinary tract infection, about a 20% increased risk. A definite increased risk for a mycotic um, genital infection, about a five-fold increased risk, as well as increased LDL, increased creatinine. And I think one thing I've been curious about is the risk of diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA. And there were zero cases of DKA. Even the euglycemic DKA, which is what we've been hearing about with these medications. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. I think for me, the genital tract infection can't be played down because sometimes I think we have a tendency to sort of write off some of these side effects as well. You know, maybe you just deal with that. It's not a big deal. But some of the patients that I've spoken to find these infections to be very uncomfortable and very limiting in the quality of their life. So I think that we shouldn't ignore those as a potential major harm, even though it's not, you know, life-threatening, so to speak. So what were the main limitations? There's always got to be something. One of the obvious issues here is that they didn't look at the hard endpoints, which is what we're most interested in. So we know from other meta-analyses that empagliflozin specifically, that reduces your risk of heart failure, CV mortality, all-cause mortality, and that's really important. So for some reason, they didn't look at the harder endpoints, but there it is so that we're all aware This also highlights the limitation of a meta-analysis to assess the risk of harm. I get it. Meta-analysis is probably the best way to synthesize evidence for benefit. But for harm, there were zero cases of DKA. I don't believe, I just, I just, I can't believe that. We know that this is an issue. We don't have big data yet, but we know this is an issue. And the other thing that wasn't mentioned is that these medications are expensive. So, you know, a 30-day supply of metformin in the U.S. is about $4. In Canada, we undercut that at about $3. A 30-day supply of SGLT2 inhibitors in the U.S. is $400. And in Canada, it's about $100. Yeah, and I think that, you know, this design and the study may not be the right uh, way to answer the question about DKA with the SGL2 inhibitors. Maybe we need to wait for you, Mike, to come along 
and give us a good retrospective cohort study, you know, of uh, a million patients uh, to see what what ha- what happens with the rates of DKA. So we'll wait for that. That sounds good to me. <laughs> um, so. What do you think? Take home. What's the message for our listeners? Well, let's be honest. SGLT2 inhibitors lower the A1C about as good as metformin does. But there are obvious other benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors, some of which we've alluded to. And in terms of the harms, we're still trying to figure out which patients are most susceptible. That'll take time to figure out. So how does it change your practice overall? So I have prescribed one patient thus far an SGLT2 inhibitor and they were readmitted with DKA two weeks later. So I'm a late adopter here. Um, This will change my research practice. I'm gonna hunt for some badness with these drugs, but not my clinical practice. Fair enough. We always remember the bad outcomes with our patients, for sure. Well, thanks, Mike. Final round, let's go. I am gonna talk about and finish the show with a study that looked at the outcomes associated after you resume warfarin when you've had a hemorrhagic stroke or traumatic intracranial hemorrhage and you had underlying atrial fibrillation. This was in JAMA Internal Medicine in February of 2017. Perfect. What was the research question? They wanted to know what the prognosis was when you resumed oral anticoagulation treatment in patients with underlying AFib who sustained an intracranial hemorrhage. Fairly straightforward. All right. That sounds important to me, but any other reasons why this is particularly important? Well, I think, I mean, I can recount on, you know, several patients I've seen who had AFib, were treated with anticoagulation, and then suffer some sort of uh, anticoagulation-associated intracranial event. Um, And the literature will tell us that that carries a 30-day mortality risk of close to 50%. So you're going to have a 50-50 shot of dying if you're on anticoagulation and you have an intracranial hemorrhage. But if you survive, and this is where I've been stuck, You have to balance between reducing the overall risk of thromboembolism from their atrial fibrillation, but also you can't forget that they came in with a bleed in their brain. And we have to find a balance and strike a balance between those two competing risks. But there's not a lot of evidence to help us make our decision about that. So this study is hoping to try to address that in a unique kind of way. Okay, cool. So how did they attempt to do that? Well, like all good individuals who are looking for an important outcome, but with not a whole lot of events, they did a retrospective observational cohort study. It was conducted in Denmark, and they used administrative data, including individuals who had known AFib and were using warfarin. So this is not a study that looks at individuals on any of the direct oral anticoagulants who suffered an intracranial hemorrhage. They split those into whether it was a traumatic-associated ICH or a non-traumatic-associated ICH, like a hemorrhagic stroke. And you were excluded if you had a prior intracranial hemorrhage. The primary outcome was the time to event of ischemic stroke or systemic embolism, as well as recurrent intracranial hemorrhage within one year. So they just followed people for one year after that. And then they looked at mortality as a secondary outcome, it being, you know, the golden egg. Cool. Yeah, I mean, those endpoints are uh, clinically relevant and uh, fairly hard endpoints. So it sounds like uh, a good idea. Uh, So what did the patients look like who were included in the study? Again, somebody that I've come across before and had to try to help make these decisions with. Uh, It's a 77-year-old gentleman who comes in either with a hemorrhagic stroke or a traumatic subdural hematoma. Chad's uh, VASC score being 2, so sort of, you know, intermediate risk for uh, embolism from his atrial fibrillation. About 30 to 40% had had a prior stroke or a TIA. A lot of those were related to their atrial fibrillation. 
and 65% at hypertension, so you know, underlying risks for hemorrhagic stroke to begin with. Interestingly though, 20 to 30% were also concomitantly on aspirin or an NSAID, and despite that, only 10% had coronary artery disease or PCI, so not a lot of sense made on the multiple medication use and antithrombotics in these individuals. Okay, so a pretty sick patient population at, at baseline, I guess, as to be expected. Um, so what were the main results here? Yeah, and, and you nailed it right there with being sick. So 6,700 patients were included that were on warfarin. Uh, just over 1,300, so 20% of them died in hospital. And then another, you know, about just over 400 died within two weeks of the discharge from hospital. So overall, a quarter of their cohort died following their intracranial event. So for the main result is as follows. For 100 patients in one year who suffer a hemorrhagic stroke, I'm going to focus a little bit more on the hemorrhagic stroke side of things, 60 of them who did not resume warfarin versus 9 who did would suffer an ischemic or an embolic stroke. In percentages, 9% of the cohort who did not resume warfarin versus 3% who did resume warfarin would have a recurrent ischemic or embolic stroke. But the rate of recurrence of intracranial hemorrhage was similar for each group. About 5% of them suffered a recurrent ICH as well. However, here's the big point to, as a caveat to that uh, last one. If you actually said, well, what was the likelihood that an individual was to be put on warfarin following their intracranial hemorrhage? Something we would call propensity matching to try to get around the lack of randomization. It actually showed that your risk was about 2.25 fold higher for a recurrent intracranial hemorrhage if you were treated with warfarin. So that initial lack of difference between the two groups suggests that there's some decision making by the physicians and patients who had these events not to put them on warfarin because of something about their intracranial hemorrhage. And finally, traumatic subdural hemorrhage showed similar proportions for all of these numbers, except they also showed higher rates of recurrent intracranial hemorrhage if they were not treated with warfarin, which is kind of funny. Okay, all right. Um, and what were some of the main limitations uh, for this study? Well, they found that in the secondary outcome, all-cause mortality was significantly different between those who did not and did resume warfarin. So if you did not resume warfarin, your all-cause mortality rate was 35%, whereas if you did, it was 15%. But I think there's a lot of confounding bias buried in there because they, there's no reporting on the severity of the intracranial hemorrhage, and I think this is the limitation. You know, an intracranial hemorrhage can be a small dot or it can be half your brain, and then that influences the decision-making of the physicians to put people back on an anticoagulant after that. So, you know, they tried to be slick and adjust for the severity of the intracranial hemorrhage without knowing it by looking at length of stay in hospital and assuming that those kind of correlated, but I'm not so sure if that's the case. Okay, yeah, I, I mean, I strongly agree with that statement. I think there are some major issues with this study, some of which you have already touched on. Uh, but, you know, pragmatically, we know that if you are restarting an anticoagulant on somebody who's had a bleed, you know, you better have a pretty good reason to do that in that you're not worried they're going to have another bleed. It was a very small bleed, et cetera, et cetera. Those granular details we're not going to pick up. But also, like you said at the start, a quarter of these people, people died after they had intracranial hemorrhage. 
So you have to be superhuman just to make it to the end of this study. And I just can't believe the sort of mortality benefit we're seeing here. Yeah. And I think, you know, take that even one step further. Let's say, for example, you see a gentleman who comes in and he has a massive intracranial hemorrhage. He's lucky or unlucky enough to survive the event, but he's left completely functionally dependent and bedbound. He might survive, he might not survive, regardless of whether you put him on anticoagulation or not. But really, at that point, you're asking yourself the question, well, what is the benefit of anticoagulating this gentleman, right? We're, prevent, we're trying to prevent stroke, which might impair his functional ability. But if he has no functional ability to begin with, we're less likely to put him on anticoagulation. And I think that's what's skewing the numbers in this retrospective cohort study. Yeah, a lot of issues with confounding control, for sure. So what's a take-home point for you? Yeah, so take home, I think, you know, if you're looking at this just sort of on face, patients with a first-time hemorrhagic stroke had a poor prognosis overall, but resumption of warfarin treatment was associated with a lower rate of ischemic stroke or systemic embolism, a higher rate of recurrent intracranial hemorrhage when you adjusted for their propensity to be treated with anticoagulation, and I'm not so sure about the conclusion of significantly lower mortality. But I think that makes biological sense. If you're anticoagulated, you're less likely to have a stroke from an ischemic or embolic cause, and you're more likely to have a recurrent intracranial hemorrhage. To me, that makes sense. Okay, cool. Does this change your practice at all? Well, you know, the one thing I'm always scared about, and this, this sort of reaffirms that in my brain, is to avoid errors of omission by withholding anticoagulation in those individuals with atrial fibrillation following an intracranial event. And typically, well, the evidence would suggest we would resume anticoagulation in those individuals who we deem a benefit to be anticoagulated within about three months. And in this study, it was seen to be about 30 days was the average time to resumption. So, you know, it's a reaffirm, reaffirming for my practice. It doesn't overall change it in a large way. Okay, cool. Well, Mike, I like this format. I think we should keep doing it. Listeners, if you think we should keep doing it, tweet at us on Twitter at roundstable. Tweet at Mike, tweet at myself. All of our information is on the blog. Mike, thank you for joining us again in your busy schedule. We really appreciate having you on the show. And we look forward to having you next time. Absolutely, Kieran. Always a fun time. And best of luck with your last exam. You're a smart, smart man, so you'll be fine. <laughs> appreciate it. Thanks so much. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week.